Okay, and believe me, this is the last time I ever judge you for anything that you ever do. Oh, Is that who you were with? I knew it! I always Take this, knew Michael. that! Forget, no, forget. no, put the mask no. back on! No, no, forget this, Michael! Don't forget, forget, Michael! Forget! Now's the time you forget. Now you're forgetting. Now God. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget. Stupid, forgetful Michael. Only a model. Welcome to Welcome to Storybrooke. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And this is episode four of season five, The Broken Kingdom. Which means that we are on chapter four of book seven, It's Only a Model. I prepared for this episode. I have been rereading uh, The Once and Future King. I also prepared for this episode by downloading Once and Future King on my Audible account. But I have not yet started listening to it. Ah, so I'm very ahead because I'm like two chapters in at this point. Well, unfortunately, I donated to the Talking Simpsons Patreon this week, which means that I've been listening to all of their Patreon-only episodes, and oh, I've just I had... love Talking Futurama. Yes! So I've just had, like, no time to, you know, do our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, this episode... I don't really know how I feel about this episode, to be honest with you. I was enjoying the first two-thirds of it, and the last third I really hated. Okay, so have I ever told you about one of my favorite horror movies, High Tension? You have never told me about this movie. It's a French movie. It's about this girl who goes on vacation with her college roommate, and a man breaks into the house, kills the roommate's family, and abducts the roommate. And the girl goes after her Uh huh. to save her from the guy who kidnapped her. Oh no, based on what happens in this episode and the fact that you're telling me the story now, can I guess? Yeah. Does it turn out in the end that the girl, the roommate girl, was in league with the kidnapper murderer the whole time? No, it's dumber than that. Oh, Spoiler, okay. <laughs> spoilers for the movie High Tension, just skip ahead like 10, 20 seconds. Uh, it turns out that the girl was actually the killer and she was just delusioning the man kidnapping her roommate and killing the family and it was all actually her oh okay and the thing is this makes it make no sense like a whole bunch of stuff doesn't work if this is one person doing it by herself there's a whole scene where she's in the back of the uh, killer's truck comforting her roommate how is that truck moving if she's the one driving it that's like in Fight Club, which, by the way, I actually like the movie, although I distrust any guy in his 20s who loves it, but I, I do like that movie. But once you know the ending and you think back in that scene where they're in the parking lot and they're fighting and that guy's like, hey, I call next. Next what, dude? Yeah, it's just a guy punching himself in the face. You're like, cool, I went in on that. Right? I mean, that's the guy who invented Fight Club. Yeah. Anyway, um, was your point that twists are dumb? My point is that twists are dumb, and this episode is... It's weird because, I'm, I want to say, it's solid up until the twist at the end ruins it, but the reason it's solid is because it gives us a lot of excuses to hate on David. Oh, we do love hating on David. It gives me, it gives me life. Also, I feel like this 
this plot, the plot we're going to get this episode, I know we've been talking a lot about how there's a very clear attraction between Arthur and David. And this plot makes a lot more sense if David is actually cheating on his wife with King Arthur. Yeah, that is accurate. Plus, there's all the parallels to the whole Lancelot thing, so it feels like the metaphor they're extending is definitely a sexual one. It actually makes a lot of sense, because in what we see of Lancelot and Guinevere in this episode, they don't bone, right? It's an emotional affair. Which is what David and King Arthur are doing. So we should actually get into this episode. As a reminder, David became a knight of the round table last episode for his heroics in the mushroom forest. David is now a knight of the round table. He gets his own fancy chair. Yes, he gets the most important chair at the round table, which is contra the idea of the round table. But okay, whatever. Whatever, once upon a time. Whatever. Not, Not to grind this dead horse into a fine paste, but this was... Arthur's special chair that he used to only let Lancelot fill before Lancelot betrayed him by fucking his wife. And now he's decided that David is worthy of filling his his seat. Which is called the Siege Perilous. Which isn't what the Siege Perilous is, but... Uh, Wait, Once Upon a Time got an aspect of mythology wrong? X-Men got it more right. X-Men. So the episode proper, oh, also Emma's the Dark One and she's having trouble fighting it and the incarnation of Dark Oneness has taken the form of Rumpelstiltskin to tempt her into doing evil. So that Robert Carlyle has something to do in these episodes. Which, God bless Robert Carlyle. They gave him a lot of room this episode to just be Rumpelstiltskin and thank God for that. It's like they remembered, wait a second, we've got this actor who's got a lot of charisma and he's very, very good at playing this archetype up, so... It's like they were like, oh wait, we just remembered what people actually like about our show. We should probably do some of that. So we open in a, uh, gosh, what would you call it, a village? Uh, It aspires to be a village. It's like three huts and a gazebo. Also, what is with Once Upon a Time and gazebos, but... eh. Remember little Bo Peep had the battle gazebo? That was really weird. Yeah. And Cora had the adultery gazebo. Cora did have an adultery... And and the Frozen sisters had the betrayal gazebo. Yeah. Huh. What is it with this show and gazebos? Weird. I had, like... Gazoinkspo. I've literally never noticed this show's thing with gazebos before, but you're right. It's like, uh... You know how Hallmark does a whole bunch of movies, like, made-for-TV movies at around the same time? Uh-huh. And if you're paying attention, you can see the same set piece over and over again? Sure. Do you think it's like that? I absolutely think it's like that. And you know what I really want to believe? I really want to believe that that's the gazebo from the middle of Stars Hollow. Uh. I mean, it would make sense. It's a soundstage. Yeah. Also, Connecticut is lousy with gazebos. So, this, this, this dust bowl that aspires to be a village is Camelot many years ago. Because unlike the rest of this season, where the structure is modern-day storybook flashing back to the memories that people have lost, the structure of this episode is Camelot, during the time that people lost their memories, flashing back to Arthur's backstory. So we're doing flashbacks within flashbacks this episode, people. I have a feeling like that's not great storytelling, but... Incepted flashbacks. It's a maristroika of flashbacks. So, 
baby King Arthur and baby Guinevere are wandering around this village. They're like eight to ten around that region. I thought they were eight when I was watching it, but I'm so bad at judging ages. Let's go with ten. They're probably around ten. Yeah. I feel like you can't really get a good performance out of an eight-year-old. Definitely not. Or a ten-year-old. Okay, so Kid Arthur is telling baby Guinevere that there is a tree in the center of town that's actually a dude, or possibly has a dude trapped in it, and that dude told him that he would become the king of Camelot and save everyone and be super awesome, and the two of them are totally going to get married. Okay, it's weird that Merlin is trapped in a tree before Arthur meets him. I really felt like it was implied when we first meet Merlin and he's trapped in a tree that he became trapped in a tree at some point during Arthur's lifetime. But now we're learning that Arthur went on this mystic quest because a tree told him to. Yeah, you can't go around believing every talking tree. This throws, like, everything into question. Also, I feel like this episode makes it impossible to ignore how ridiculous it is that the guy who pulls the sword out of the stone gets to be king of England. Hmm. We don't really get a good bridging from point A to point B here. We'll see King Arthur as a child, and then we'll see him as the king of a struggling kingdom, but we don't really get a thing from how he went from poor stable boy to king. Yeah, and I feel like this show really wants you to bring your knowledge of the Sword of the Stone with you when you come to this story, because if anything, King Arthur's quest to draw the Sword from the Stone should prove to us, the viewer, that he is worthy of being king, that he has kingly traits. Mm. And since we skipped over that, and since King Arthur is evil, I'm just like, strange women lying in paws distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. God, I wish we hadn't blown that clip so soon. Yeah, I know. It's really applicable for, like, this whole season. So, baby Guinevere's like, you're gonna be king, huh? And Arthur's like, yeah. So... Guinevere's kind of skeptical about the whole I'm going to be king and you're going to be my queen thing until he hands her a middle mist flower. Which I guess is Arthurian for a pink rose because that's all it is. Yeah. And he tells her every year on your birthday, I'm going to fill the kingdom with these flowers. And she's like, so am I ever going to lose my French accent? And he's like, okay, look, accents in this show are random at best. You're going to be French forever. Deal with it. This is a really weird promise to make to a person. Every year on your birthday, I'm going to give you one of these flowers. I mean, that's like taking a poignant picture that the camera can pan to when you go missing. Like, that's not a thing people actually say. It's really bizarre. It's And you know what? It makes it really clunky. It's It makes you really, really aware that you're watching a constructed story when you can see the seams like that. Mm. Speaking of constructed stories... Guinevere notices a sword that is sticking out of a pile of stones. And she's like, look, Arthur, it's the sword and the stone. And he's like, okay, so we all know about that? I mean, I guess we do, because the prophecy says that whoever pulls the sword out of the stone is going to be king. But And look, there's a sword sticking out of some stones. And he's all like, well, that was a freebie. Yeah. But it turns out this was a prank set up by Kay. Now... You may remember Kay by that time he got disintegrated by the Sword in the Stone at the beginning of this season as an adult. I I sort of have questions about Kay here. This mostly comes from me recently reading Once in Future King, but he's ambiguously Arthur's brother, right? I mean, they're, he's Arthur was his dad's ward, and the two of them were raised together. 
Right. Well, because Arthur is Uther Pendragon's son. Yes. Right. Um, okay, but I don't see I don't see a conflict here. This is definitely a asshole brother move. Mm. I mean, I assume I don't have brothers. I also don't have brothers. But based on what fiction has told me, this feels like an asshole brother move. It does. It just seems weird. There, the show doesn't really go into Arthur's relationship with Kay. I mean, he didn't seem bummed at all when the guy got vaporized. Yeah, that is weird. But again, that maybe is not so much a flaw as something that would have been better if we had gotten some more of Arthur's story fleshed out. Because that could have just been an indication of how single-minded he had become on his quest instead of just a weird little, huh, that guy's brother just got disintegrated and he totally doesn't care. I mean, Arthurian legend is subject to some pretty serious editing. Yeah, and, even uh, more so than the X-Men. Yeah, and just look at how Morgan Le Fay slots into Arthur's family tree How's... in different adaptations. How sad that we get no Morgan Le Fay in this version. I'm so pissed. I actually had a book from her point of view as a kid, which I loved. You know what would have been amazing? What? If they had made Emma as the dark one, Morgan Le Fay, the way Rumpelstiltskin was every villain in every story. Oh, that would have been so cool. Damn it. Anyway. You know, I think I think we do this podcast so that we can at least in our hearts watch the version of this show that we want it to be. This is Monday morning quarterbacking the show. The podcast? The podcast. So Kay is basically your generic Flash Thompson-esque Butch Hartman. Bully. Yeah. He's picking on Arthur because Arthur's just a stable boy nerd who needs to get shown that he's a nerd i don't know yeah nobody's gonna follow a stable boy and okay number one he's not wrong but also he drops the title of the episode saying that this kingdom is broken because it has no king and it's always going to be broken and never have a king and i mean this is important plot points for later the fact that it's the broken kingdom will come into the plot in a really really dumb yeah, dumb way. But also, maybe you don't need a king? Maybe move past the monarchy because maybe it's just oppressing the peasant class? I don't know. That's just me. I'll, I think they need some sort of government. I don't know how this town is functioning, but I feel like they probably need to get someone in charge. Uh, seriously, though, all I was thinking about when I was watching this is the episode of Gallivant where they go back to King Richard's kingdom and discover that since he's gone, the peasants decided to make it a democracy. Yeah, they're like, we didn't hear from you for a really for a really long time, so we all just kind of decided to move on with our lives. And Also, in that same episode, he pulls the sword from the stone, not even realizing what he's doing. Oh, Gallivant's such a good show. You should watch Gallivant. It's on Netflix now. It is on Netflix. So listen to our podcast, but instead of watching Once Upon a Time along with us, do yourself a favor and go watch Gallivant. Alan Minkin does the songs from it. I know, it's great. It's so good. Anyway, after Kay leaves with his friends laughing about... What a huge nerd Arthur is. Guinevere tries to cheer him up and is like, Oh, don't worry, I'm going to be the supportive woman who tells you that that thing the tree told you is definitely going to come true and you're definitely going to find the sword and pull it out of the stone and I will be your supportive wife queen. We cut forward to the scene we saw at the beginning of this season 
where Arthur is pulling Excalibur out of the stone, except <gasps> the bottom part of it was broken off because it was made into the Dark One dagger. And and apparently this means that Arthur can't actually be king, which I feel like is really dumb because it's just a symbol anyway. Yeah, and he found most of it. He should be mostly king. Maybe there should be, like, some sort of council that helps him out because he's only, like, three-fourths king. I feel like this episode isn't really clear about this, but since we've watched it multiple times to prepare for this recording, in the actual Arthurian legend, the sword is an indicator. You pull the sword and it indicates that you are worthy, like Molnir. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, I feel like the thing about the sword is that not just only a worthy person can pull it out, but that the actual act of finding it is a test. And once he passes the test, Merlin will use his magic to make the kingdom be more than three mud huts. Hmm. And that's that's what he really wants. Hey, maybe instead of spending all of your time looking for a sword, you should try to start some sort of economy. I, I was just thinking that. Anyway, he comes back to his broken kingdom with his broken sword and lies to all the people because that's what good kings do. Okay, I just sort of noticed this, but... Uh... We briefly see Percival again, but his, what do you call tabard? it? Tabard? His tabard looks so much like the ACDC logo. Oh my gosh, it was distracting! I noticed that this time through as well. Anyway, Arthur immediately lies to all the people, and I want to say, since we're still in the good two-thirds of this episode, this is the kind of thing that could have been a really interesting story if the story had been, I was on this quest that was all-consuming, and now that I've achieved the goal of the quest and gotten the sword, I don't know what to do with myself. The whole thing was I wanted to be king, but I don't know how to rule. Which is what we already saw with both Regina and Snow White. I wanted to be queen, but I don't actually know how to rule. The thing that's interesting about Arthur's story is that it's sort of an inversion of theirs. How so? Well, specifically Regina's. Regina wanted to be queen, well, Regina never wanted to be queen, but Regina's goals as queen were to the detriment of the kingdom. She just wanted revenge. She didn't care how it hurt the people she ruled over. Yeah, for Regina, being queen is a means to destroying Snow White. It's not even that. It's more of a... It's a way to have the power to destroy Snow White. Yeah. Meanwhile, Arthur is all about his kingdom to the detriment of his personal relationships. Oh, it's true. We're definitely going to get into how, in this episode, Arthur is the businessman from an 80s movie who's so consumed with work that he ignores his family. Or, also, Arthur is the comic book scientist and Guinevere is his uh, long-suffering wife. He's Hank Pym and she's Janet, Janet Van, Van Dyne. Dine. Oh my god, that's so accurate! He's Reed Richards and she's Sue Storm. Which makes sense, because he's an asshole who does unforgivable things in this episode, just like Hank Pym. I was gonna say, just like Reed Richards. He shot their kid with a gun. Reed Richards, not Arthur. Yeah. Okay, although if there's an adaptation of Arthurian legend where Arthur just straight up shoots Mordred, I would be so in for that. Okay, now, I know Marvel loves to do fairy tale, Arthurian legend kind of takeoff stories, have they ever done a story where Hank Pym is in the place of King Arthur or where Reed Richards is in the place of King Arthur? No, most of the Arthurian legend stuff is in Captain Britain. I guess that a makes sense. 
or to a lesser extent, the Black Knight stuff. Oh my god, I forgot about the Black Knight, and I read so much Black Knight stuff. Yeah, he's terrible. Yeah. Also, Morgan Le Fay's sort of a generic sorceress antagonist for the Avengers sometimes. But, I mean, that's just... You're gonna get that. If you have a superhero universe, eventually they're gonna fight Morgan Le Fay. It's just a rule. Yeah. So anyway, Arthur pulls Guinevere to the side, and he's like, I am king now, except... I pulled up a little bit short. Oh. So we go to Camelot in the, not the present precisely, but the present for the flashbacks this season. Right? Okay, let's just call it the present and the past just to keep things straight, even though we understand that this present is six months before the present in Storybrooke, which we'll get at the very end. Or however much time. I made things more confusing instead of less, but I feel like our dear listeners have been following us long enough. They know what's up. This is the middle present. The middle present. Okay. So Arthur is being a super creep, uh, standing in his throne room, waiting for David to come. And come David does. Now, King Arthur, as part of his long-term manipulation of David, has decided to reveal to him... The fact that Excalibur is not whole and that in order to in order to save the kingdom, he needs to fix the sword. And... and the bottom part of the sword is the Dark One dagger, which makes so little sense, even when we get to the explanation. And he tells him that since he's seeking to destroy the power of the Dark One, the only thing they can do that is the full Excalibur, so they need the Dark One dagger so they can reforge it, blah, blah, blah. But even David isn't this stupid, because he's like, wait, I thought the only thing that could defeat the Dark One was Merlin. Shouldn't we be focused on Merlin? Okay, so I love this next bit, because it does the thing that Once Upon a Time does really well, which is lean into horror tropes. It is horrifying. It's So we're going to cut to the tower where Emma is staying, and she's whittling a... She's sharpening a stick? I don't know what her plan is here. Well, uh, remember, Rumple told her to get a hobby because the Dark One doesn't sleep. His oh. was spinning, so she's whittling, I guess. Oh, I didn't even pick that up. Okay. He asks her to listen, and she looks up, and he's like, it's calling to you. And she wanders off, and we see what she's been whittling, I guess. I've... Oh my gosh, I just put together that that's what she was doing with the wood. Because it, it looked like she was sharpening it, but you're right. She was making the thing which is hanging behind her, which is... A series of the most ominous-looking dream catchers I have ever seen. I really like how they drew the dream catcher thing into her general evil aesthetic. It again, we've talked about how it's got some uncomfortable cultural appropriation-y context to it, but visually speaking, it's it really works for the sort of quiet horror that the show can do. Yeah, Emma sitting in the dark tower with the with the blue light illuminating the dream catchers, is a great shot. And Rumpelstiltskin, the representation of the Dark One living inside her head, tells her that something is calling to her and she needs to go answer. She starts walking slowly down a hallway until she reaches a room that's got a box in it, and inside the box... Is the dagger, the Dark One dagger. Rumpelstiltskin tells her that it wants to be reunited with her, that that's why she that's why she's feeling it. And she reaches for it, and the force field that Regina has put around it blocks her. It's interesting. It's white light, 
Is this light magic? Yeah, I think Regina used light magic to protect the dagger. Honestly, I was really hoping they would go more into what kind of protection spell Regina had put around the dagger because, well, because then we could get into some Swan Queen territory, but I think that's just my own personal preferences. Yeah, there. this episode, for as good as this scene is, Emma isn't a sea story this episode. It's true. So she hears a noise and she does a little fireball she shoots an energy bolt but it comes out like light magic it comes out like yellow and gold yeah it's not the white beam of energy we usually see light magic being but it is yellow it yeah it is light it's not a fireball like regina throws so but it turns out the noise she heard was hook coming into the room and luckily she missed him because Otherwise, it would be super awkward to explain why she just energy bolted her husband. But then again, I guess David stabbed Parsifal and it got to be a knight of the round table. So who even knows what the rules are in Camelot? Yeah. So Hook hugs Emma and Emma finally tells him about seeing Rumpelstiltskin. She's like, he's in my head. He's telling me to do things. And I, I don't know how much longer I can fight him off. Yes. Now, we go... From that to Hook bringing her to her family so that they can talk her down. And I really can't talk about this scene before I mention how great everyone looks. It's true. Everyone is rocking their Camelot outfits. Except David. I mean, even Mary Margaret looks good. I know. she's. I mean, the circlet thing really works with her hair. And she's got this sort of mid-length collar thing and she's got slash sleeves she has yeah and she's got a she's wearing like a silver quilted coat and regina is still wearing the red dress that oh my god and even henry looks great dressed in his little squire outfit i mean damn they should stay in camelot if just for the fashion i know right so they decide that they need to get Emma, you know, out of the kingdom, away from the dagger, and away from other people, because, again, no one in the kingdom knows that Emma is the dark one right now. David wants to give King Arthur the dagger. Yeah, David's all like, no, I totally believe King Arthur. King Arthur is definitely the person to trust here. King Arthur told me that when he reforges the Dark One Dagger with Excalibur, which is broken, by the way, but if we fix it with the Dark One Dagger, then we can destroy Dark Oneness and Emma will be saved. Yeah, sure. And Mary Margaret's like, oh, wait, I've been meaning to tell you. Lancelot's not dead. Don't worry about why he's not dead. And he said King Arthur is evil. And David's like, wait, so you trust Lancelot? And, and Mary Margaret's like, yeah, he's our friend. He married us. You can't trust a dude just because he's cute and has a beard. And then Regina awkwardly clears her throat and they both realize that she's still in the room. Hook left with Henry and Emma, so it's just the Charmings and Regina. And they're like, can we have some privacy? And she literally doesn't even move. She just gives them a look and her teleportation smoke surrounds her. It is... The best moment for Regina in the entire episode. I wish I could leave conversations that way. Right? But Mary Margaret's on the side of, we should trust Lancelot, Arthur's up to no good, and David's on the side of, Arthur's hot and I want to bone him, so shut up, shut up, shut up. It's really bad. Also, just to be clear, after the twist at the end of this episode, they still say that this fight was real, so we can still keep our hate on for David going. 
So Mary Margaret even accuses David of being a star fucker, basically. Yeah, she's like, you're just dazzled because it's been so long since you've seen a king. You just couldn't wait to kneel before a king. So the two of them scream for each other until the scene finally decides to uh, spare us by going back in time to Arthur being a medieval magic sword tree graduate student. I was going to say he's Watcher Junior Medieval Edition. He's trying his best to find the Dark One Dagger because he has figured out that the Dark One Dagger... Oh my god, do I have to say this again? The Dark One Dagger, when it is remerged with Excalibur, will form the full sword and then he can be king and drive all evil out of the land and blah blah blah. And Guinevere comes in and is like, hey, um, it's my birthday and we're having a ball outside. How about you be a king slash husband instead of whatever this mess is? Yeah, she's like, take one night off. Come dance with me. We can look at the stars and pretend everyone doesn't have scabies for a night. And this is the moment where Arthur says the thing I was talking about before, that this is a test that Merlin has set to him. And that if he can pass Merlin's test, they won't live in squalor anymore. Which, as you said, maybe invent an economy instead. Yeah, like, it's less ridiculous in a world full of magic to think that a sword will magically solve all of your problems. God, it would have been so great if more of this season had been focused on Arthur's obsession with a sword fixing all of his problems when, you know, that's not the answer. Yeah, just work on your problems. So Guinevere goes out to, uh, it's her party and she can cry if she wants to. Yeah, she's super sad. Everybody is dancing and having a good time, except for Guinevere, because her husband is more interested in his sword than in her. And Lancelot, being the good guy that he is... Hmm. Sits down to uh, cheer her up. Everyone at this party is being very rude, by the way. Maybe they felt like it would be more rude to acknowledge that she was upset. I can see that. But he tells her that it's Judy's turn to cry. That is the B-side of it's my party and I can cry if I want to. I'm aware. Well, they might not have been. Okay. But and he... It's actually not the B-side, it's a sequel song. Mm. Anyway, so Lancelot is cheering Guinevere up about... How Arthur may be busy, but he's only doing it for the good of the kingdom, because he's a good king and he loves her. And also, Lancelot will dance with her. A woman gets up on the platform and says, A gift from King Arthur to his beautiful queen, and starts throwing the middle mist flowers. Yeah, she's, she's throwing the petals, and actually there are several people with baskets strategically placed around the dance floor, so the idea is that everybody gets covered with petals, it's like a medieval balloon drop. Yeah. And Guinevere's like, oh, that's really sweet. And also, Lancelot, I totally know that you planned this because Arthur is not good. Yeah. And Ar speaking of the devil, Arthur comes running up and he's like, hey, I think I found a really big clue about how to find the dagger. I'm going to go look for it. Uh, Lancelot, you stay here with my wife. You can, uh, you, I need you to watch after her. You can crash in my bedroom. It's cool. Bye. Back in the present... Tish, present. Middle present. Middle present. David goes to meet with Arthur in secret, and he tells Arthur, he's like, okay, so my family didn't want me to talk to you about this, and everyone says it's a really stupid idea, but my daughter's the dark one, and we have the dagger, so we can just slap Excalibur together tonight. Yep. Yep. This is the part where we start yelling at David because of what a betrayal this is of Mary Margaret, even though, you know twist they planned it together 
I don't care. I still hate David. But King Arthur's like, so your wife wasn't cool telling me this? Is it the beard? Does the beard make me look sinister? Is that a thing? And David's like, that's not really important right now. He does actually say that. Like, we say joking things like this all the time. But Arthur really does say, is it the beard? But David tells him, no, no, it's Lancelot. Lancelot is back. Because if you're going to betray one person, you may as well betray them all. And also, I'm going to say, even with the twist, this is definitely a betrayal. Because David and Mary Margaret planned this, but Lancelot is not in on it. And so he has still given away to Arthur that Lancelot is alive and back in the kingdom. Spoiler alert, that's not going to go well for Lancelot. Anyway, back in the flashback flashback. Queen Guinevere is running away. You see, she stole the gauntlet that finds a person's weakness, which we have seen in the show before. Yeah, this story is actually the backstory of how... Rumpel got that gauntlet. Yes. And she says that she knows that the dagger is really Arthur's weakness. So it will lead her straight to it. And it, she's right. You know, you can just say the Dark One's name three times and he shows up. But he won't have the dagger with him. Yeah, probably not. Arthur's putting in a lot of work. Everyone knows where he, Rumpelstiltskin lives, even. I mean, Robin Hood's robbed it a couple times. I know. It's, it's a problem. See, it wouldn't be so much of a problem if he was in a different realm... Or if they spent a little bit more time fleshing out what this research entailed, what happened, or any of the time period between when he was 10 and when he went to fetch the sword. Anyway, Lancelot says he's going with Guinevere. And I actually think that this shows great loyalty that the two of them have to Arthur. At this point, they're not thinking about macking on each other. They're both really determined to get Arthur back from his megalomaniacal quest. They just want him to start tilting at windmills and become the fucking king. Yeah, exactly. And of course the gauntlet leads them right to the Vault of the Dark One. You know, that weird circle thing that barfs up black goo that becomes the Dark One? Yes. And Guinevere recognizes the symbols on it from the research that Arthur was doing, so she's able to open it instantly. Yeah, she knows which symbols to touch in which order to make the dark one show up well i it, it doesn't really make the dark one show up but it does disgorge the venom looking pus. dark one ooze yeah. yeah but then that stuff disappears to reveal a stairway leading down into the earth so it doesn't turn into the dark one so the two of them descend into the dark one's lair yeah, that's going to go well. Also, Guinevere is wearing a great leather adventuring lady outfit, and Lancelot is wearing a black knight's outfit. It They both look great. They I just do. need to throw that out there because everyone looks so good this episode. Now, they make it roughly ten steps into this cave before a whole bunch of evil CGI... Symbiote stuff. Yeah. It's like the goo, except it's also kind of like bees, maybe? Oh, I can kind of see that. It's It's got a swarming quality to it. But it's the same stuff that attacked Emma last season and turned her into the Dark One. And now it engulfs Lancelot, but Guinevere chases it off with a torch. Yeah, that shouldn't have worked, but okay. Yeah, whatever. And then she kisses Lancelot. I mean, near-death situations are always sexy if comic books and action movies have taught us anything. And then she's like, oh, that was a really bad move. I mean, the kiss was fine, but that was a bad move. 
Yeah, she's like, let's not do that again. And let's definitely not tell my husband, the king, slash your best friend, that we made out. I mean, they didn't even use tongue. It's fine. It's true. And they both agree, like... I, I don't get on TV how people get so upset over one chaste kiss. Remember in Scrubs when Turk and Carla almost got divorced over Carla and JD having a drunken kiss that didn't even involve tongue? Yeah. Anyway, we go from that to the middle present, where Arthur is freaking out about the fact that Lancelot is back in Camelot. I'm not sure if he's freaking out. I think he's more having ambiguous emotions about it. Well, he's he is presenting to David the idea that he's worried that his wife is going to bone Lancelot, even though we know that is not a worry he actually has. But Guinevere was lurking just outside, and she's like, Tell me where, uh, tell me where Lancelot is. I want to make him pay for what he did. And then they really strongly imply that Lancelot raped her. Yeah, it's really weird. Cause and they, uncomfortable and not okay. Because David's like, I heard you had some culpability in that yourself. And she's like, hmm, you shouldn't believe every story you hear. Literally every aspect of this is gross. Can I just go down all of the gross aspects of this? Yes. Okay, it's gross when... Like, just to do it chronologically, it's gross when Arthur is saying, oh, we shouldn't let my wife know that Lancelot's here because she has feelings for him and I have to play defense. It's gross when Guinevere shows up and says, you know, she doesn't want to deal with all the stuff that happens and David just blames her without even knowing the story. Knowing as he does that legends that have made it to the world without magic are not accurate. Well, remember, he did hear about the Lancelot thing in-universe. Oh, that's true. Okay, so it's only a little gross. And then it's gross when Guinevere, who, spoiler for the end of this episode, is being mind-controlled by Arthur, lies to David and implies that Lancelot raped her. She said, What she specifically says is, Lancelot coveted far more than a kiss from a queen. Which... Okay, so perhaps she's implying that he was going to kill Arthur and overthrow the kingdom and not sexual assault. Although, I don't know, that's ambiguously phrased enough to... But either way, her free will is being overridden by Arthur in this moment, so... Spoiler alert. For the end of the episode. I... This... It's very uncomfortable. Let's move on to the next thing. So, yes, Arthur's like, yeah... It's a really, like, I didn't want to speak ill of him back when I thought he was dead, but Lancelot is major league trouble, and as long as he's in Camelot, the dagger's not safe. And David's like, yeah, it is. I've got it right here. And he takes out the box, which we saw earlier in the episode has the dagger, except whoopsie doodles, now it doesn't. Yep, dagger's gone. And it turns out that Mary Margaret is smarter than David. Yes, Mary Margaret has the dagger, and she is bringing it to Granny's diner, where Lancelot is hiding out. So, Henry is leading Emma and Hook to a secret horse depository. Stable? Sure. Yep, it's where he has come to get some alone time. And by alone time, I mean alone with Violet time. Yes, it's Violet's secret place that she has shown Henry. And Hook's like, ah, you're hitting that, huh? And I was like, dude, gross, he's my kid. And he's, what, 14? And, and then Violet shows up and Henry tells them to hide, which 
I feel like could have led to something terrible where Emma is hiding and now she sees her son macking on some girl. That's not what happens, but it totally could have. Yeah. Okay, also, I I just I can I just need to pause this right now since Violet's on screen. Okay, because you read a little ancillary material, didn't you? Oh my god, I did. Okay. So first the plug, and this is for a couple months from now, it's going to go up, but I'm going to start a series about TV tie-in novels, because I love TV tie-in novels, but in this series, the first one I'm going to do is one that I was made aware of, thanks to, to Ryan, one of our listeners, thanks, in quotation marks, uh, Henry and Violet. Uh, Henry and Violet is a Once Upon a Time novel, just just a little a little preview, a Once Upon a Time young adult novel where over 200 pages, Henry and Violet fail to buy a book. Whole story. That is what happens. Also, it seems to have been written by a woman who is unfamiliar with the core concept of Once Upon a Time because she doesn't really seem to understand that the characters in Storybrooke are displaced fairy tale characters. And you know what? I don't have time to get into it here, but that book is so bad. All right, let's go back to the show, which is slightly less bad. So Henry's like, hey, Violet, want to take me riding? And Violet's like, yeah, Henry, you know I do. And he's like, by the way, my only experience with a horse was uh, killing one by abandoning it and leaving it to starve to death back in season two. So I'm going to need a lot of instruction here. I'm sure that horse is fine. I'm sure whoever owns the stable is taking care of the horse. Hmm. Well, what happens when you're a prince is that other people take care of your stuff for you. And don't forget, Henry is a prince. Hmm. Yeah. So Emma's upset that henry lied to her about not having a crush on the girl which is super weird because that's literally the thing that any child would have said yeah because hook was all oh you've got a crush on her and henry's like uh not on no i don't okay that's not a lie that doesn't qualify as a lie that's just a child not wanting to talk about their blossoming sexuality yeah that's normal emma i know that you're new to being a mom but that is normal and good and okay it is okay and good that Henry doesn't want to talk about... Well, she's not new to being a mom anymore, right? I mean, oh, she... you're right. She has all those memories from raising Henry now, even though she didn't. God, the show's so weird. I love it. Yeah, she's got her own separate curse memories of raising Henry. All the positive curse memories. Blessing memories? Uh, but Emma finally gets around to telling Hook, Look, I have this image in my head. Like, the Dark One is there tempting me to do bad things and hook tells her well then we're gonna distract you so he's gonna take her on a horseback ride to distract her from the dark one hmm. really hook is teaching emma this episode about practicing mindfulness about like being in the present and aware of her surroundings to stop intrusive thoughts he talks about it's how he handles his own demons, but really he handles his own demons through alcoholism. Alcoholism is his demon, and his desperate need for revenge. Well, he doesn't really handle his alcoholism unless you consider being drunk all the time handling his alcoholism. Mm. I mean, he's a functional drunk, so... Anyway, in another part of the woods... Mary Margaret and Lancelot are talking about his relationship with Guinevere, because that's what's important right now. You know, they're just making small talk while they do their thing. And Lancelot admits that he does still love Guinevere, will always love Guinevere. 
just so that we have that knowledge. And then we go back to the flashback within the flashback, where having defeated the symbiote goop, Lancelot and Guinevere come upon the door that leads to the... God, it looks like Neverland. Yes, it does. It leads to the place where Rumpel has been storing his dagger. It's a little pocket dimension forest thing. That looks like Neverland, which bother issues much, but anyway. That could kind of be the subtitle of this show. Yes. Yes, it could. But it turns out that the uh, Dark One dagger they found was actually a trick. And Rumpelstiltskin appears to scold them for being naughty. And really just to give Robert Carlyle some time to have some screen time. He's like, oh ho, that's Merlin's gauntlet. I'm going to take that because, you know, I have it later in the series. And it fills in some continuity. Ha ha. Yes, he offers to trade them that gauntlet for not the dagger because he's not a fool, but instead for the mists of Avalon. Oh boy. A dust which will appear to fix what is broken. Not actually fix, but appear to fix what is broken. Uh, he gives them the mists of Avalon, or sand from the island of Avalon. Yeah, it's, he calls it sand from the island of Avalon. I'm just calling it the mists of Avalon because... That's what... It's mists. It's... Yeah. Also, he gives a really creepy warning to Guinevere, since she's obviously having at least an emotional affair with Lancelot, and... You know, he reminds us, the audience, that when his wife left him, he killed her. He says something along the lines of bad things happen to women who stray from... Who, who have to choose between love and duty. Yeah. Yeah. Remember... Rumpelstiltskin can kill his wife. Yeah. Anyway, in the middle present, Lancelot has brought Snow to the vault... And they are not attacked by the symbiote this time. Yeah, I guess. Symbiote's busy palling around with Emma. <laughs> and he takes her to the door, to the portal, to the Neverland-style place. And Snow White recognizes this as being the place in her vision where she saw Emma turn evil and starting that her on the whole trajectory where they threw the baby into the death pit. Yeah, remember she when she found out she was pregnant, she went to get a vision from a unicorn to find out what the deal with her baby would be. And she found out that it would be evil because she saw teen Emma ripping out her heart in a glade. And this is that glade, so it turns out that visions are metaphors or something. I, this, it Was this just their way of making up for the fact that they reused a set? Because they don't explain why every lake looks exactly the same. No, I think they want to tie Emma's choice between good and evil here to the fact that at the moment of her birth, she was at a point where she could be either the best good or the worst evil. So Arthur shows up, I guess he followed them, and he's like, Ha, your husband betrayed you to me, and now I'm going to take the Dark One dagger and merge it with Excalibur, and then Excalibur will be whole, and I'll use it to banish all evil from the kingdom, and everyone will be happy forever. Ha ha, I'm evil. Or not, whatever. I'm underhanded, at least. Yes. Anyway, then we flash back to the flashback, where Guinevere and Lancelot are returning, from their mission, and Arthur sees them through a spyglass and realizes that they're super in love because of the way she cups his face, even though he leaves because he realizes how uncool this all is. He being Lancelot. Lancelot pieces out because he's like, I love you, but 
Uh, I love my king and my kingdom more, so we can't keep doing this. Bye. Anyway, she comes back and she tells him that she went searching for the Dark One dagger and she found it. And he flips out because it's not in her bag. And she's like, yeah, we found it. We just didn't get it. I'm sorry. That sentence was a little misleading. Part of the reason, like, when he's desperately tearing through her bag to find it, he's like, at last I'll show Merlin that he can't manipulate me anymore. Isn't the point of reforging Excalibur to save Merlin? I mean, I know he's been resentful of Merlin because Merlin told him he'd be king. I thought the point was to prove himself to Merlin. Honestly, even when the characters tell us what they're doing, I have no idea what people's motivations are this season. It's a real problem. Yeah. So Guinevere's like, yeah, we found the dagger, but we didn't take it. This quest is destroying you. You just need to... Jesus fucking Christ, dude. You need to man up, be king, and rule the kingdom. Rumpelstiltskin gave me this little vial full of sand that makes broken things appear whole. I could have used this on Excalibur, but I decided it was more important for you just to face reality and deal with the real world. You need to work on fixing things. You can't just be looking for a magical solution. And since he doesn't want to deal with that statement, he decides to redirect the conversation to Lancelot and accuse her of being an adulteress. Which, no. I know. It's like, you know what, Arthur? Focus up. And he's like... Focus up. And he's like, well... I, I still need to finish my mission. I need to fix the sword so I can save the kingdom. And that'll be easier if I have you on my side. Okay, this sand has a real broad definition of what fix what's broken means. Because he like throws it on Guinevere and is like, let me fix our broken marriage. And suddenly she's like, oh my god, I didn't realize, but you were right about everything. I love you. Let's go help you fix that sword. Yeah. And then he throws it on the kingdom. Yeah, he's like, let me fix this broken kingdom. And then the kingdom turns into Camelot, which just raises so many questions. Like, it only appears to be an awesome, wealthy kingdom now, but... It's only a model. But, like, people are living in there in the middle present, so... I mean, it's... It's it's not just an illusion, it's like an actual place. Are they all living on a green screen? I mean, it's real to some extent. I mean, people aren't getting into bed and saying, oh, just kidding, it's just the ground. I, You know what? I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to go with it. This it's, seems... the, it's the least of my problems right now with this episode. This seems like another excuse for them to show off the CGI model they made of the castle again. Because it's another really long panning shot of Camelot. Yeah, except this time Camelot is coming into existence as we pan over it. They must have spent a lot of time and money on that model. I guess so. Anyway, we cut from that back to the middle present, back in the glade where where Arthur Lancelot and Snow White are in their... Standoff. Their standoff. Okay, I love this because Arthur has a sword to Mary Margaret's throat and he's like, give me the dagger. And she's like, no. And he's like, okay, I recognize that you're a main character, but Lancelot's not. So give me the dagger or I'm going to kill him. But he flips out at, like, he gets distracted flipping out at Lancelot because he's like, you took my wife and now you're trying to take the dagger and you suck so much, bro, I'm going to stab you. And Mary Margaret's like, you know what, fine, just take the dagger, I don't even care. I don't even care. And she gives him the dagger and he's super psyched and tries to summon Emma. 
Well, first he explains what he's going to do with the dagger for what has to be the 5,000th time this episode. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna reattach it to Excalibur and make Excalibur whole. And then he's gonna use that to snuff out the darkness forever. But when he tries to summon Emma, she fails to appear. Turns out the dagger was a fake. Yeah, Mary Margaret's like, fooled you, that dagger's not even real. And Lancelot's like, wait, what? And, uh-oh, turns out David was behind King Arthur, which is normally where Arthur likes David, but... But not this time. Not this time. He puts his sword to King Arthur's, uh, first his back and then his face, and he's like, Yeah, see? I was in on it the whole time. I definitely didn't betray my wife and friends for you. My wife and daughter for you. Yeah, they explain that the plan was they would both go to their man Mm -hmm. and pretend to betray the other and then see which one of them was an asshole. Which is not not a bad plan. plan, Especially for them. So we cut from this trickery gone right to... Hook trying to get Emma onto a horse to distract her from her evil impulses through horseback riding. Sure. But the horse is spooked because Emma's super evil. Okay, this is a thing, right? Horses not being able to carry witches? Yeah, that is a thing. Yeah. And Rumpelstiltskin, the Rumpelstiltskin in her head, shows up to mock her over that. How even the horse knows that she's soup's evil. And Hook gives a speechy speech about how, like, she needs to just believe in him. She needs to put... Her trust in him, and then later he'll let her put other, more fun things in him. Hells yeah. Yes, yeah, somehow when Hook gets on the horse and then Emma gets on behind him, it doesn't spook the horse. Because the horse can't sense her evil through Hook's meat shield. I don't know. Anyway, they ride off together. So, back at Granny's, they've got Excalibur, and Arthur's just kind of hanging out at a booth. Well, they have him shackled. He's in old medieval-style shackles sitting in a booth in Granny's. And David's like, just because Arthur planned to use the sword for evil doesn't mean we can't use it for good, which... Dude. Also, Arthur, his goals aren't evil, necessarily. He wants to get his kingdom back together. I, I mean... But, dude, that sword is somehow intimately connected with the Dark One dagger. And also, best case scenario, Arthur started off with good intentions and then turned evil trying to make the sword whole. So maybe don't fuck with the sword. Yeah, I don't get why they're just labeling Arthur as evil. Like, he did some shitty things, but David, you stabbed a dude a couple episodes ago. Well, I mean, I will... I will argue Arthur is the worst and super evil, but that's mostly because of the way he is mind-controlling his wife, but they don't know that at this point. Yeah. Yeah, knowing if they knew what we knew, yeah, Arthur's evil, but they don't. They know he's this guy who's super desperate to put this magical sword together so he can save his kingdom. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing he did was demand the dagger from Snow White at at sword point but he's always been up front that his goal is to get the dagger at any cost so he hasn't really revealed anything yeah anyway this is interrupted by guinevere bringing a whole bunch of knights to the cafe yep and unshackling arthur because she has the key apparently 
I guess. And I thought, asks her, why are you do? Why are you saving him? He's evil. And she says, no, I'm in love with him. You're just going to have to accept that I'm super in love with him and not with you. And then she takes Excalibur back and they just let her. I mean, I guess she's got a bunch of knights with her. Although I love how Lancelot's like, oh, he used the Miss of Avalon in, on you. That's what's going on here. You're mind controlled. And she's like, I think I would know if I was being mind controlled. Yeah, yeah. And then she, like, totally just starts making out with Arthur in the middle of the diner, proving that she's not mind-controlled, as her as her knights grab Lancelot to bring him to the dungeon. And David and Mary Margaret are like, hey, do you know how annoying and front-credited we are? Now that we're your enemies, you've basically already lost. And Arthur's like, meet my friend, the Miss of Avalon. How much of that stuff does he have? Also, what exactly is broken here? David's trust in... Yes, he broke David's trust. Shouldn't work on Mary Margaret, though. I... This is what I'm saying. These mists play fast and loose with what it means to be broken. They're like, uh, fix-it Felix's hammer. Yes. Yes. So, in the dungeon... Lancelot has a conversation with a mysterious stranger who we can't see. They hide her from us for so long. It's Merida. If only we could tell which heavily Scottish-accented woman this was. You know, I want it to be cool. I really do. You know what? It's a kind of unrevealing reveal that this show just does all the time. It could have been a super cool reveal, though, if it was somebody who we hadn't just met had a super distinctive voice, and was telegraphed was going to be a heavy part of this season. Like, if it had actually been a surprise, like, if it had been Mulan? No, you know what would have been better? Aurora? No, actually Mulan and Aurora both would have been better than this, but if we had the heavily uh, Scottish-accented woman, and it turned out to be Merida's mother, Eleanor... Ooh, that would have been good. Oh, that would have been great. Eleanor gets so screwed up. It's like they missed the entire point of Brave. Eleanor's not even in this season. They absolutely missed the point of Brave. And I know, I know it's got to be, I know it's got to be the network telling them that they have to put in modern princesses, but I'm just so angry that it wasn't Mulan in there. Yeah. That could have been awesome. Mulan and Lancelot teaming up. To defeat King Arthur and Rumpelstiltskin would have been the kind of thing that this show was made to do. In another part of the castle, the part where Regina's been all episode, which, so sad. Regina's been gone this whole episode, practically. She's pacing around the room, and Robin Hood's like, I know you're worried about Mary Margaret and David. And she's like, I'm not worried about them. They're like cockroaches. Nothing can kill them. Yes, she acknowledges that David and Mary Margaret cannot be killed because they're the fucking Charmings. She's worried about the situation. And David and Mary Margaret come in and they're like, oh, it's cool. Turns out Lancelot's a liar. King Arthur's totally boss. We should do what he wants. And also Lancelot is in prison. And also, hey, why don't you give me that dagger so we can give it to King Arthur? He knows what he's doing. And this is the best way to help Emma, which is the way to sway Regina into doing what you want. Mm, that's right. So back in the sea story... Emma is riding on a horse with Hook, and it's making her forget all of her troubles, except she briefly sees Rumpelstiltskin and is slightly concerned. That's it. Yeah, basically. She's like, oh, I guess I'm not going to become the Dark One after all. Smash cut to present day. Yeah, this scene exists basically just to contrast with uh, the Dark One, which Emma has eventually become, which 
we haven't seen all episode. We're finally, we're now we're in the present present instead of the middle present. Yes, we are finally in the legitimate present. Where she has actual Rumpelstiltskin chained up in her sex dungeon. Or I guess it's just a regular dungeon. It's just a regular dungeon. You can tell because there's no swing. Anyway, she tells him again what we already know, that because he's a blank slate, she can put whatever she wants into him, and then he can draw the sword out of the stone for her. Yeah, she's going to fill him with uh, heroism, and then he'll pull the sword from the stone, and she can do whatever she wants to do with it. And then comes the moment that made both of us like groan in pain and yell at the TV. It was so bad. Emma goes to a different tunnel where she has her bug parked, and Merida tied up to the fender of the car. And Merida's like, I should have killed you when we first met. And I'm like, did you forget you were shooting all those arrows at her? You attempted to kill her when you first met her. And Emma's like, I should have ripped your heart out then. Oh, wait, I'll do it now. And she rips out Merida's heart. Because as she tells Merida, she needs her to teach Rumpel how to be brave. Yeah, the last third of this episode is terrible. So, that's over. It was... It was fine, I guess. The plot actually moved forward, so that's nice. So the next episode, I believe, is the episode where people in the storybook present actually get their memories back. Ooh. Which is a lot faster than I thought it would happen, so maybe I'm wrong. But the next episode is called Dreamcatcher. Huh. Maybe it's where we find out how they lost their memories. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, let's talk about fashion. All right. Well, it was a lot of outfits we've already seen before, but still, everyone was killing it. Honestly, we had so few moments in modern day storybook, and I think that made all the difference, because everyone is killing it in their medieval outfits. Okay, so Jennifer Goodwin's hair didn't bother me as much as it normally did. Is Do you think it was the circlet breaking it up? I do think it was the circlet breaking it up. Because it also does look good with hats. Yeah, it makes it look less like a mom cut. Mm. And honestly, I'd say the only weak point for Fashion Corner was David, who... It was fine. Well, it just looks like this teal quilted version of his normal prince outfit. It's got these, like, beads on it that I'm not a fan of. I don't really care for seed beads that much. Well, it's got it's got this quilted pattern, and then in the center of each of the patches... Is, is a, a little seed bead, yeah. It's not great. But, I mean, everyone else looks really good. We can't keep on talking about how amazing Lana Perea looks in that red dress. Are you sure? Because I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on how great Lana Perea looks in that red velvet dress. Point. <laughs> so I guess that's it for us this week. Yeah. This show is partially listener supported. If you would like to become one of those patrons, you can go to our website, ilovetelevisionzines.com, and become a patron. You can also listen to past episodes while you're there. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Cassidy, Alec, Alex, Alicia, and Ryan. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you could always rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this show, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash ilovetelevisionzines. You can also contact us at ilovetvzines on Twitter or at ilovetelevisionzines at gmail.com. So until next week. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And this has been Welcome to Storybrook. I've been trying something new in the Dominion since you went away. 
With no king upon the throne, we've all been left alone to build a new tomorrow here today. Right. What if every single soul with an opinion got to have their say? If on every point of note we simply took a vote, we'd build a new tomorrow here today. So... The butcher gets a vote? Yep. The baker gets a vote? Yep. And everyone who couldn't vote before. Except, of course, the women. And we won't let him or him in. We mean everybody else. Except the poor. Progressive for the Middle Ages.